Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. I'm Panel Beater. And with me in the therapist studio this morning is Dr. Dilemma and Dr. Neo. Good morning. Good morning. Happy Sunday. Good Happy morning. Sunday. Happy rainy, wet Sunday. Very rainy. Oh, it's true autumnal spirits out there at the moment. Did you hear Edith on Things to Do Today this morning? She, she cracked a joke. She says, what do you call um, the day after two days of rain in Melbourne? The third day of rain. The third day of rain. She she said it's Monday. Oh, yeah. It's always the weekend. It's a bit rough on a weekend. You haven't had any uh, plans interrupted by this inclement weather? No. Well, I think you just have to um, kind of lean into the weather. You know, I set a housewarming yesterday and um, it was... uh, It was was actually... um, Cowboy themed the house forming, and they <laughs> they got a, had a mechanical bull. Oh my uh, Organised for the for the house forming. <laughs> Were there injuries? Uh, How did you go? Uh, so, um, yeah, no, not well, not well. I won't, I won't, I won't still lie. Standing. I won't lie, and I'm a bit sore this morning. I can't really walk. Um, Isn't all you need to do hold on really strong and just yell yeehaw a lot? Yeehaw. I tried. <laughs> I tried. My, I tried my hardest, and. I, the ball still managed to send me flying, um, but that was in the wet, wet and wild ride. Wet and, and wild ride. It was, um, hmm. and you know, you just got to lean into the weather. Yeah, I think. indeed, indeed. How are you, Doctor Dilemma? I'm very well, thank you, Panel Beater. Um, I had a hens party last night, and we were traipsing through the <laughs> the city in the rain, uh, which is probably quite a sight to see. Oh. A big group of us. Um, not letting the the weather rain on our parade. <laughs> we were the... committed to having a good night. So. How's the guest of honour this morning, do you reckon? Yeah, uh, I don't know. I'll have to touch base soon and <laughs> make sure. Good Still stuff. Standing. Good no, stuff. Good fun. Hey, what's got your attention during the week? I um, uh, saw a breaking news in the Saturday paper, a report from uh, Rick Morton um, yesterday. It might be something we can radiotherapy mm. can keep an eye on. Um Rick Morton, who's been doing great work, he did great work on the um, robo-detton, uh, in- including sort of the um, mental health impacts there, but he's he's now written this article um, following up on some stories coming out of attention being given to the Mental Health Commission. Well, remember, the Mental Health Commission was set up with um, great gusto a while ago under the um, Morrison government, and um, it looks like uh, there's a bit of peril going on, uh, accusations of um, uh, financial irregularities and dysfunction in the in the organization and and even down to good old-fashioned workplace bullying this is a real concern isn't it because the commission for for many reasons it's a real concern a we needed that royal commission Mm -hmm. and we needed that commission set up i mean um uh, to be able to pay attention to something that was remember the context of covid and mental health and everything and, and and then just societally more broadly we're also talking about huge amounts of money. Mm. We're also talking about um, uh, something that, you know, radiotherapy listeners obviously are really well attuned to is something that's so crucial to get right in our community on, on all layers. So um, this is all breaking, so I'm not across every single detail, mm. but for those interested, there's a Rick Morton um, article in the Saturday paper this weekend. Yeah, I think it's something we'll have to 
you know come back to and give it um its proper time it's it's such a complex topic and yeah well we should be you know keeping an eye on things and calling people out and it it, it would be a real bummer if it this mm-hmm. folds you know um mm-hmm. it would be it would take another five ten years to get something up mm. up and running again yeah so stay tuned to that we'll um, stay tuned we'll come back to it hey uh i i mean last month um i think you'll remember that i mentioned the the junior doctor strikes in the uk yeah they're at it again um those dastardly junior doctors out it again for for some more money no i i i think i'm really i'm quite impressed that they've they've decided to stick to their guns and go again for another round of strikes this week and I just wanted to touch on, I mean, the strikes are, as I said last month, really important and um, really key for some pay restoration for these doctors who uh, do some pretty incredible work in the NHS. But I wanted to touch around more some of the the terms used in the, in the media and in the discussion, particularly the term junior doctor. Yeah. And just give a bit of clarification what that actually is because a lot of the the media organizations are using the term junior doctor to somewhat either intentionally or non-intentionally infantilize the the doctors in this um in this strike and i guess from our point of view junior doctors is kind of make up the bulk of what um of the people in who actually be looking after you in hospital so junior doctors are terms used for doctors who start from their first year of training up until the very final day before they become a consultant, so mm-hmm. can practice um, in a unrestricted manner, basically. And in that time, it takes probably at a minimum six years. Sorry, uh, Doctor, just repeat that again, just for clarity. So, you, you, what does unrestricted mean in this context? You know, it means that you're not being supervised by anyone. Um, so that's the the consultants. Um, it'll be the person that you see in private practice, for example. Um, but the vast majority of the day-to-day work and the day-to-day doctoring and the people that you interact with on, a, on an everyday basis in a hospital uh, and even often in GP practices will be junior doctors. Mm. Um, so you can be a junior doctor for upward of five, ten years. Ten years, yeah. you know, and 15 years. And that doesn't include all of your tertiary education as well. So, for example, I've done seven years of tertiary education and three years of being a doctor. Uh, so that's 10 years of training. Um, and I'm still very much considered a junior doctor, which I think is a bit of a misnomer. So what you're getting, what you're getting at is that the way that this issue is being reported, even perhaps by people who are sympathetic to it, mm-hmm. they're using a language that might be conveying to the general public that there's something less about exactly. being a junior doctor yep. when... And if that message gets through, then people, you know, in the general public may be less sympathetic to the claims being made yep. by, the, by the junior doctor. Oh, they're just a junior doctor. We can pay them less. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Uh, which I think is not fair considering it's that junior doctor who's probably doing most of the life-saving work out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, what does the future for the, the issue look like? Are we, you, you brought it up, brought our attention to it last month. We're talking about it again this month. Is, yeah. there, any, is there any light in this particular tunnel? Unfortunately, I don't think there is any light at the moment. I think that that they are going to have quite a hard slog in front of them. You know, what they're talking about, if it it does get passed, their recommendations will be billions of pounds worth of um, compensation. And it's on a... And I think that's a 
very difficult thing to get uh, off the ground, yeah, sure. but is equally very important. So I think it's going to be a long road ahead for them. Dr. Dilemma. Watch this space, yeah. Dr. Dilemma, something caught your eye during the week? Or we, we want to, let's talk about the guests you've got lined up. Uh, mm. we, we do. We've, we've got, got two guests lined up, yep. and I'm very excited for our chats uh, this morning. Uh, Later on, we've got something with exercise physiology, is that right? Yep, that's right. We're going to speak to Jason Gardner, who is an exercise yeah. physiologist, uh, to teach us about what exactly is exercise physiology and who needs it and uh, why, why do we not hear more about it. So very excited for our conversation with Jason. But first up, we're going to be chatting with uh, Professor Catherine Crock, who uh, will be chatting to us about her work with the Hush Foundation uh, and her work not, not only improving patient safety and patient experience, but also the experience of healthcare staff working in those settings. So, yeah. Brilliant. Looking forward to both of those. Um, before we get right into the meat and potatoes of the show... Um, or tofu and potatoes for our plant-based um, listeners, um, including myself. <laughs> um, I want to draw attention to the fact that it is April Amnesty um, at the moment here in the station. And April Amnesty, for long-term listeners, will be well aware that this is the baby cousin to the big Radiothon event that we have um, later on in the year. Um, but April Amnesty is a great chance that if you are a regular subscriber and you've bumped into somebody over the last little while who's new to listening in, um, you might uh, be a great opportunity to give them a nudge to um, to join us um, in the um, subscriber community for Triple R. Or if you're a, uh, a already a subscriber, you might want to make a small donation as well. These are just the two periods of the year where we, we make a little bit of noise about the need for... Um, subscriber support uh, from our listeners to go along with our wonderful um, sponsorship uh, crew. Um, and there are many, many, many benefits of uh, being a subscriber. And we'll talk about a couple of those during uh, the show. One I want to draw attention to um, that links in neatly with a big shout out to our colleagues at Einstein and GoGo. Um, who a couple of weeks ago put on a uh, their show in the performance space here at Triple R. So subscribers were able to come along and um, come into the studio um, and hang out in the performance space to watch the uh, Dr Shane and the crew do their thing. And in this case, they gave much needed attention to endometriosis. I don't know if you guys caught mm. it, but it was a, it was a fabulous show, and it was great to see so many subscribers in the um, in the performance space. Um, I don't think it's something that we could ever do. I've got a real face for radio. Uh... <laughs> well done. Well done. An oldie but a goodie. <laughs> You're not the only one with a face for radio. So, um, yeah, so April Amnesty, uh, still a couple of weeks to go, of course, um, and uh, we would love to, to hear from you on that front. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Our first guest this morning is Professor Catherine Croc. Uh, Cathy is a doctor who works in haematology at the Royal Children's Hospital and is chair of the Hush Foundation, which is a foundation that Cathy started that transforms the culture of healthcare through music and the arts. Cathy also spearheaded the Gathering of Kindness movement, which aims to build, nurture and instill a culture of kindness throughout our healthcare system. Good morning, Cathy. Thank you for joining us on Radiotherapy. 
Good morning. Lovely to talk to you. Lovely to have you on. Uh, Cathy, we're, we really want to know what inspired the, the work that you do with the Hush Foundation. Is there... Well, what is the Hutch Foundation to start off with and, and what, what was the motivation behind, behind starting it? So the Hush Foundation, we're really thinking about transforming the culture in healthcare and using the arts to help us to tell a story and to emotionally engage people so they think a little bit differently and uh, don't just, you know, do business as usual. So it came about actually in about 1998. My job at the time was doing bone marrow tests and lumbar punctures on children with leukaemia. And as a junior doctor at that stage, I felt it really stressful. Um, We were restraining children to do procedures. Um, I felt like the families were having trouble coping. So I sat down with a group of families and I said to them, tell me about the cancer journey when you've got um, a really sick child. What are some of the parts of that journey we could do differently or we could help you with and the parents were fantastic really open they had lots of suggestions for improvement including could we do something about the pain management and could we do something about the environment of a hospital that's so harsh and stressful when we come in so that was when I decided let's get some composers and musicians and people who understand environments to come in and give us some advice and um, for the last 20 something years the Hush Foundation has brought composers into hospitals or other healthcare settings and they compose music specially to help calm everybody in that environment so that was really where it started and um, I had no idea that it would still be going nearly 25 years later. That's fantastic. And, and did you say that there's been a, a, a new uh, album just, just recently released? Is that right? Well, yes. Over the last um, 12 months or so, we've been working with the incredible um, Australian classical guitarist Slava Gregorian. And Slava came to me at the beginning of the pandemic and said he was really worried for health professionals and everything that we were going through. And he wanted to say thank you. So he has composed... a an hour of beautiful solo guitar and the album's called Gratitudes. Um, and the idea is he wants to, each of the songs is like a little thank you note to us health professionals um, for the hard work that we do. Mm. Dr. Croc, it's um, Dr. Neo here. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. I I know that, for example, Alfred Health have just um, put out this wonderful uh freshly composed piece called A Portrait of Roe um, on the their weight music, actually, on the, on the phone line. And I, think I recently listened to the piece and it was such a beautiful kind of evoking um, bit of music. I guess I was wondering where your music is being played for, um, for patients and visitors. Operating theatres, recovery rooms... Um, treatment rooms where people might be having various blood tests done, etc. Um, in GP surgeries, I don't know that we're on hold music. We used to be on hold at the Royal Children's, mm. but now they have a lot of um, health messages they need to get across, so mm. we don't do that. Um, 
But yes, that piece at the Alfred is absolutely gorgeous. That's written by Jessica Wells, mm. and Jessica has composed for Hush um, in the past and is in fact working with us in the next couple of months on an album we'll be doing for mental health specifically. Mm, oh, lovely. Yeah, so we're taking nine composers into the women's mental health um, hospital at, that Cabrini runs in Elstonwick, mm. and we're going to workshop with the staff and the patients there, and Jessica's one of those composers, so I'm expecting something really beautiful to come out of that. Um, Nat Barch is... Um, one of the pianists who's sort of leading that project and she's bringing some other brilliant um, jazz pianists with her. Mm. And the Hush Foundation has just been donated a piano which we have put into that um, women's mental health unit. And already people are playing it and just going, wow, this really improves the atmosphere. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's spreading in lots of different directions and sometimes we don't even know where it's going. And then I hear back, you know, it's being played in London, it's being used in um, in the US, in the Seattle Children's Hospital, things like that. It's so joyful to know that it's now got a life of its own. Professor Croc, um, you mentioned a, a variety of the settings um, in which the, the music can be heard. And now with such a history behind you, there's obviously volumes and volumes of music. Um, I understand that maybe in some settings it it's might be a more or less a set and forget, somebody presses play, but there must be other settings where there's a more deliberate conscious decision about what to play. Um, do, who's, who's, is there a discussion about what's most appropriate in what particular setting, you know, depending on the demographic of the, of the clinic and so on? Yes, there is. And, um, well, I can speak from my own experience in our operating theatre. We do have a talk as a team about what might be most appropriate for the morning, depending on what patients are coming through or what intensity of the work there is. But everything that we have written for Hush is to a fairly strict brief that it needs to not interfere with what might be going on. Mm. So I think that's important. And the composers also are very aware that there's a cacophony of noise in a healthcare setting and we often get used to it and don't really notice, <clears throat> but they're quite aware of it and they know that the music needs to be fairly um, non-intrusive and um, of a sort of optimistic bent. So they're always thinking about keeping it uplifting and optimistic, which works in, I would say, pretty much every environment. Professor Croc, it's uh, Dr. Dilemma here. Um, I think it's fantastic that we can incorporate what's often such a big part of people's lives, music, and uh, such mm. meaningful... Um, bring that into uh, the quite clinical or sometimes sterile environment of a hospital. So um, I've heard also that the Hush Foundation um, are not only um, producing these beautiful albums of music, but... Um, uh, performances and plays that um, that have really incredible messages to communicate to uh, staff at, at the hospitals. Can you speak to the, the performances that the Hush Foundation has, has put together? Yes, yeah, so we have a series of what we call health plays and those came about because I was actually concerned about um, some of the behaviours that might be going on behind the scenes in healthcare, some of those hidden agendas that we don't really talk about and they certainly affected me when I was a younger doctor and 
when I tried to speak up about improvements and things, it did not always go down well. And um, so realising that the music had made a difference and had really started some good conversations about environment, thought, what about getting some actors and playwrights to help us reflect some of the culture issues? And I um, contacted Alan Hopgood, who was an extraordinary Australian playwright, um, and together with Alan, we collected true stories from junior doctors, from parents who felt they hadn't been listened to in a particular scenario, um, from senior staff who felt burnt out or had really struggled through the system. And we put together these plays. They run for about 35 minutes, um, quite dramatic. The um, the first play we wrote, Hear Me, is about a devastating medication error that comes about when um, a young person comes into hospital vomiting, a drip's put up, the wrong amount of potassium goes into that drip. And um, the junior doctors involved in that particular case didn't feel safe to speak up about the mistake. The consultant had obviously been bullying people and harassing the junior staff. And we noticed the mother, as part of this conversation, not feeling she had a voice and able to speak up when she saw something going wrong. At the Once the, the young person has died, the senior management all come together and they're trying to work out, you know, how did this come to pass? Now, all of us working in healthcare have seen these scenarios played out and we know how this happens, but we often don't speak up. So... When we've put the play on in a hospital, we then have a facilitated discussion with the audience. And this is absolutely fantastic and amazing because it brings people together to go, OK, hang on, we know this stuff is happening. Why do we not all speak up, speak together about how to improve it and how to improve the culture? Mm. So over the last 10 or 12 years, we've put the plays on 200 times in hospitals around Australia and internationally. Every single audience we go to talks about the, the culture and the difficulties and the crisis they have in their hospital or their organisation. And um, as a foundation, Hush actually started to feel quite concerned about the negativity and what we were hearing about this crisis in culture. But we like to be optimistic and forward-thinking. So you mentioned before we do the gathering of kindness. The idea of the gathering of kindness is how do we together, health professionals, patients and families, all of us together, build the kind health system that we would all find a better place to be. So better for those working in it and better for the patients and families receiving care. And we we decided kindness being such a simple everyday term was something we could all understand and we can all respond to. Professor Croc, uh, given that you yourself are a doctor and you've been putting this play on for some time and have had, you know, probably thousands of conversations about the, the culture of medicine and the experience of people who are bullied um, in medicine. Could you talk to uh, the reasons why you think that bullying is so prevalent in our profession and why it is allowed to persist? Look, I think that's very complex, of course. Um, 
certainly comes from the competitive nature of how we had to get into medicine and then what it was like when we were in medicine. Um, and I think you can get caught up in all of that and you can get caught up in moving through the system and going up the ladder and also finding that the modelling from those above us may not be conducive to a kind system. So even though we have now been talking about this for 10 or 15 years, there are still problems. There is still a need for us to all speak up and to think about how we actually want this to be. Um, a few years ago, I joined an international webinar about this exact topic, and um, one of the people speaking on the panel was asked, why are you so passionate about doing something about unprofessional behaviour in healthcare? And this person who was now very senior said, well, I was a haematology registrar, you know, 20 years ago, and I was treated pretty badly, and I found I was bullied and harassed and did not enjoy my work. Then suddenly 25 years had passed, and I look back and I think, I'm doing this to the people below me, and it's got to stop. So I think the, the modelling is very important, and I think we've all had um, a senior or a consultant who treats us with kindness and respect, and we really feel listened to, we really feel supported. They're the people we need to be following and watching and learning from. We're speaking with Professor Cathy Crock on Triple R's radiotherapy this morning. Professor Crock, um, you mentioned working in a kind of workplace and the gathering of kindness, um, motivating staff to, to treat each other with kindness. And obviously there's clear benefits to working in a kind of workplace. It's nicer nicer for staff, it's nicer for patients. But is there is there evidence that there's actually better outcomes for for patient safety or that there's you know improvement in staff attrition rates and, and so forth? What's the evidence there? Yes, absolutely. Now that really is the pointy end that this is how we can make healthcare safer for the patients and families and safer for us working in it. Yes, there's good evidence. Um, at the Gathering of Kindness, we tend to bring this evidence forward and we have speakers like Chris Turner from the UK. Now, Chris started an organisation called Civility Saves Lives and he looks at that evidence of even small acts of incivility and what that can do to damage um, team morale and team functioning. And Chris talks about somebody being rude to you in the workplace actually reduces your bandwidth, your ability to really see what's going on in a situation and to be as safe as you possibly can be in that setting because you're actually distracted and um, mentally mentally in a bit of a fog because of the, that rudeness that's gone on. Um, so, yes, it is absolutely out there that kindness in the workplace and respect towards our colleagues will help us to have a much safer environment. Mm. Dr Croc, if listeners are listening in this morning and they work at a workplace that they think could really benefit from you know, some of these resources or having a, the performances in their workplace and whatnot, how would they go about um, incorporating some of your work into their, into their environment? Look, yes, that's exactly what we're about. We're trying to spread this and help people to run some programs and things that um, 
will make a difference in their own organisation or even in their own team. So they can get in touch through our website or our email info at hush.org.au and um, we've got some just small resources that you can use for five or ten minutes in a team meeting that are like thought provokers and um, ways that you can as a team start to rebuild your culture even if you have some quite significant problems. And we're seeing great results. People are actually looking for um, joyful, optimistic, thoughtful ways to improve the culture in their own area. We're fast running out of time, unfortunately, Cathy, but thank you so much, uh, Dr Croc, for joining us this morning on on Radiotherapy on Triple R. We thought we'd um, finish up our segment by listening to some of the beautiful work from the Nightlight album from the Hush Foundation. Oh, yes, that would be lovely. (laughs) We were going to play... um, We're going to break now to Your Little Heartbeat by the Tasmanian Symphony Orchestra with Emily Waramara. Oh, beautiful. Thanks very much for talking to me. Thanks, Professor Croc. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Joining us in person in the studio, which is always a bit of fun, is uh, Jason Gardner, who's a senior exercise physiologist and the director at Your Move Health. Jason also works as a teacher and researcher at Deakin University and has clinical um, interest areas in working with patients with uh, cancer, complex chronic diseases and uh, invisible illnesses. Good morning and welcome to Radiotherapy, Jason. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, how do you describe your job as an exercise physiologist to someone who's unfamiliar with it? Um, well, my training is understanding how different types of exercise impact on the different systems within the body. So I would explain to somebody that my job is to use that knowledge to help people manage injuries, uh, chronic health issues, disability or capacity building using movement. So exercise physiology is a very evidence and science-based um area of practice and yet I feel it's not as a mainstream in the sense that people aren't typically aware of it and it's not something that's you know it's not as common to be referred to an exercise physiologist as it might be to be referred to a physiotherapist for instance why do you think that is and do you envisage that changing in the future yeah I think there's probably a couple of reasons for that um exercise physiology as a as a profession is a lot younger than physiotherapy uh, we were only recognized by medicare as uh, as an allied health professional in 2006 um so certainly we're we're young and and a growing profession in that sense um in terms of accredited um members as well i believe uh, physiotherapists in australia are somewhere in in the vicinity of 35 to 40,000 physios around the country, whereas at present it's seven to 8,000 exercise physiologists. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, smaller, smaller base, um, I guess um, less previous experience with the profession um, and, and less marketing budget mm-hmm. as well if there's uh, less members to, to pay for it. Um, but certainly in the, the 10 or 12 years that, uh, that I've been practising, um, the awareness is growing. Um, the number of jobs is ballooning. Actually, just in the last few months, uh, there was a uh, publication by Seek suggesting that exercise physiology was uh, the second fastest growing job in the country, Ooh, um, wow. which was quite interesting. What does a a normal clinic visit 
look like for you, like when a patient walks through your doors? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm I'm primarily in the private practice setting, um, but for me, um, I suppose the first time that I see a patient, we'd sit down and have a chat for an initial consultation, find out um, the patient's uh, history, what their concerns are, why they're coming to see us, potentially then do some assessments, uh, whether that's physical capacity or whether that's um, you know, paper-based outcome measures, depends a little bit on the client's presentation, and then from there try and uh, collaborate with the patient or client to come up with a plan of action, whether that's um, some specific exercise prescription that might be suitable for their, uh, their considerations or whether that might be... Um, helping them to develop the confidence to be able to implement physical activity independently um, without needing too much help. So, Jason, I'll, I'll play my role, as usual, of being the dumb question asker. <laughs> Everything you just said sounded like a visit to a physio. Yeah. So what's the difference? Absolutely. Um, particularly in the musculoskeletal realm, there's probably a huge amount of overlap between an EP, an exercise physiologist, a physio, an osteo. Um, and I suppose, realistically, if all of these professions are, are following you know, evidence-based guidelines and it really shouldn't look too different. Um, I think in, in terms of the training background, stereotypically exercise physiologists have a lot more uh, training in, in more of the chronic disease space. Um, there's obviously you know physiotherapists that specialise in, in different areas as well. So, um, yeah, I, I suppose much more of the focus on on the exercise prescription, exercise rehab, rather than perhaps the the hands-on manual therapy mm-hmm. type uh, skills that you might see a bit more of with physio or the osteo. Mm. Jason, uh, one of your areas of interest is working with oncology clients or patients who have been diagnosed with a cancer. Mm-hmm. With ageing, the biggest risk factor for many types of cancer, and um, uh, more and more uh, our ageing uh, ageing population in Australia, more older Australians can expect to receive a cancer diagnosis during their lifetime. Why is it that exercise physiology is particularly valuable for this cohort of your patients? Yeah, great question. This is uh, this is, I guess, my passion project. I actually was involved in uh, exercise oncology research prior to going through and getting uh, my training in in exercise physiology to become a clinician. So um, there's two to three decades of research now that that are highlighting the benefits of being active or or exercising, um, both in the prevention of some cancers, but then more importantly in um, the the management afterwards. So um, you know, I guess historically we, we're, we're scared of the word cancer. It's a, it's a you know, horrible diagnosis. It's a horrible wor- word. And the approach has been to wrap patients in cotton wool, get them to, to sit still, do nothing, while uh, we as the medical uh, world do things to them to try and uh, help them get better. Um, and I guess I see the, the, the parallel with uh, cardiac rehab where 60 or 70 years ago we did the same thing to people who had a heart attack. We told them to, to lie in bed and sit still and, and you know, hopefully they get better. Whereas now you know, anyone who, who has a heart attack or who has uh, cardiovascular interventions will likely be offered cardiac rehab. We have the evidence that the same should be true for people with a cancer diagnosis. Mm. So it's, I guess, been, been my mission to, to try and help that become uh, more of a reality. Um, and there really is strong evidence that that targeted exercise can help to manage or reduce treatment side effects. Um, and the exciting part is, uh, I guess, over the last 10 years, we're having more preclinical research showing that exercise itself may have anti-cancer effects, at least for some types of cancers, and might improve treatment efficacy. So it's not only improving quality of life, but potentially uh, augmenting treatment or, or being a treatment in itself. 
And specifically, when you say reduce side effects, what side effects can exercise physiology help with? Yep. Um, I'll make a little distinction there. This this is uh, something I get on a soapbox about. Mm. Um, it's it's exercise that makes a difference, not mm. exercise physiology. I think uh, one of the one of the key uh, problems in healthcare sometimes is we get tied to our professional title rather than uh, rather than the modality itself. Um, but uh, so I'll use my research background as an example. I've done a lot of work in exercise and prostate cancer, and so we know that hormone therapy or androgen deprivation therapy can be really, really helpful at uh, slowing tumour growth, but it reduces bone density, it reduces lean muscle mass, uh, increases adiposity, it increases insulin resistance and the risk of developing diabetes. Um, you know, anxiety, depression rates increase with androgen deprivation therapy, and there's solid evidence that exercise can uh, reduce or even reverse all of those changes. Um, and so ultimately, I suppose that the idea becomes that you get the the benefits of the treatment while minimising as many of the side effects as possible, so you're getting the best of both worlds. So a question on my mind always with, with this sort of work is where do you guys get in the way before a problem um, uh, occurs? Yeah, um, I think, I mean, again, you know, the we, we know from population data that the majority of Australians and indeed the majority of most of the Western world are, are nowhere near meeting physical activity uh, guidelines um, and that there would be a hell of a lot of um, health issues, healthcare expenditure that would be prevented if people were, were more physically active. Even, you know, just walking for half an hour, five days a week would, would have huge mm. benefits. So I think there's definitely, uh, definitely a role for... Um, exercise promotion for preventative healthcare. Um, I suppose the reason that exercise physiology as a healthcare profession exists is so when uh, when we're past that point and when people have health issues and, and problems and aren't sure what sort of exercise might be appropriate or, or, or are scared to do the wrong thing, that's that's where I guess our role really Right, really right. Out. So maybe just returning to that point, um, what what would be a distinction between uh, the regime that you would advise uh, a client who is dealing with disease, say cancer or prostate, and somebody who's dealing with an injury? Are there notable differences? Um, yes and no. I suppose uh, overarchingly, there's you know we we have national physical activity guidelines for Australians. If people are able to aim towards those, then, then that should be our first port of call, regardless of the injury or, or the health condition. It becomes more difficult to, to meet those at least general guidelines, you know, the, the more restrictions or limitations you have. And so I suppose the, the role of an exercise physiologist, as well as a, a physiotherapist or a personal trainer, really should be to help people uh, navigate their own limitations uh, to do the best that they can to, to work towards those physical activity guidelines. Obviously, the more uh, injuries or health issues you have, there, there may be types of exercise that are potentially harmful or, or contraindicated. Um, so having that professional experience can be can be really useful to navigate that. Um, but by and large, I'm, I'm of the belief that there's always something that people can be doing. Um, you know, the, the more problems you have, maybe the, the options are narrowed down a little bit, but, but there's always um, always movement that can be appropriate. It can be just up to, to finding the right type of activity and the right dosage. Yeah, I feel like as a profession, uh, exercise physiologists are in a real unique position to assist with the kind of the social determinants of health that are preventing a lot of um, the people who really need to be accessing exercises and green spaces and 
and um, subsidized ways of getting moving. Um, is there any kind of push from the profession to be designing you know, better green spaces, um, accessing gyms and pools at a subsidized cost? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so our uh, professional organisation, Exercise and Sport Science Australia, is is regularly involved with um, you know working with all levels of, of government um, to you know try and promote the role of, of physical activity both in preventative health and and in healthcare. Um, and yeah, I suppose it, realistically it should be a responsibility of of all healthcare mm. professionals and policymakers to to be pushing for this. We you know. It's a bit of a no-brainer that that physical activity is good for us, and that not enough not enough of us are, are doing it. Um, so trying to make it as easy and as accessible as possible is is important. And I guess just before we um, before we wrap up, have you got a a exercise trend or um, popular attitude towards exercise that you particularly dislike? Um, many. <laughs> uh, I think. The thing that gets me the most frustrated in in my clinical practice is um, is the overcomplication of exercise. Mm. So that the idea that um, you know for all people at all times there's one particular technique that's right and that everything else is wrong. Um, you know we know that for the overwhelming majority uh, the the emphasis needs to be on getting people to feel confident to move more not to move less and so I think it's it's largely the fault of the health fitness uh, exercise industry that we've actually created barriers to people mm. moving because they're scared of doing it wrong um, whereas to be honest you know most movement is good movement so mm. the more that we can do to, to make people feel confident uh, the better rather than than creating more obstacles and barriers and fears um, I don't know if that answers the question well so enough. But I shouldn't be worried too much about my stride length when I'm going for a run. There's there's a huge <laughs> difference between what's absolute best for performance versus you know just get moving and it's good for you. Yeah. Well, just good. tease that out a little bit. Give, give us give us something tangible. What is a big difference between just health and well being type fitness and performance fitness? Yeah. So if if you're obviously looking to be as fast or as strong or, or as agile as you possibly can, then the way that you move probably does have a really big impact. Um, you know, the, the, the optimum technique might be different for, for each person depending on their, um, you know, body shape, size, biomechanics, etc. Um, but there is likely to be a, an optimum way of doing something to be, you know, the strongest, fastest um, that you possibly can. But that doesn't mean that if you're not doing it that way that it's somehow bad for your health or, or that it's not good for you and in fact in terms of energy expenditure sometimes less efficient ways of doing things are, are actually you know a better training stimulus mm. because they're harder that's that's essentially what lifting weights is is mm. making everyday movements harder than it should be are there any patterns in injury between say um just the the weekend jogger let's mm. just be random with our selection of um profile here um and their propensity for injury compared to somebody who is training for a particular say um marathon target um, are they different types of injuries? Are there one more prone to injury than another? Yes. Um, I suppose any time that somebody is, is engaging in an activity that's, that's outside their norm, then the likelihood of injury uh, goes up. So if, if you're um, exposing your body to a, to a physiological stimulus that's, um, that it's not... Um, 
not accustomed to or, or hasn't adapted to, um, then yeah, the, the risk of, of injury goes up. Um, but I guess the flip side to that as well is uh, high-performance athletes are, are always trying to work you know, right to the absolute limit of mm. performance. So the likelihood of uh, you know, pushing just that little bit too hard mm. also increases the risk mm. of injury. So mm. you know, in, injury is something that, that happens. Uh, you can't, can't completely uh, prevent it, but we can, you know, we, we can use training principles to try and minimise the, the risks and maximise the benefit. And, and essentially you know, that, that's where exercise physiology as a profession has developed is, is from that elite sport, you know, how do we maximise performance and, and then how can we, I guess, transfer that knowledge right. to, to people with injuries and, and chronic health issues. So using our two runners uh, again, um, the, 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 the weekend jogger pulls a hammy mm-hmm. and the elite athlete pulls a hammy. Is the recovery response or advice the same? In principle, yes. Um, <laughs> having said that, uh, the the motivation, the the willingness to um, you know to do different things often varies as well. So, in in terms of tissue healing, maybe it's pretty similar. In terms of what's you know desirable, what's feasible to to the patient, um, might be very different. Right, right. So, if, if if talking tissues, starting to talk about protein. So, do you guys talk about nutrition with your clients as well? Yeah, so I guess generalised advice is is within the normal scope of practice for an exercise physiologist, but for anything more specialised, we'd we'd certainly be involving a, a dietitian as well. Yeah. Just to touch on um, access um, to exercise physiology, is it a self referral process, or is how does the logistics of um, referrals and payments and Medicare and subsidies and whatnot, how does that work? Yep, it, it depends a lot on the setting. I'll speak quickly to private practice because that's where I am. So as part of uh, Medicare Chronic Disease Management Plan, um, uh, patients are eligible for up to five subsidised sessions per calendar year for, for allied health, which includes exercise physiology. Um, there's potentially WorkSafe, TAC, Department of Veterans Affairs, NDIS, uh, and private health funding available as well. Um, through the public system, obviously, there's access within hospitals and, and community health, but also, I guess, privately... Um, attending patients are, are easy enough as well. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, um, Jason, for joining us on Radiotherapy on Triple R this morning to speak about all things exercise physiology. It's been a very enlightening uh, conversation. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We want to give our big thanks to uh, Professor Kathy Crook from the Hush Foundation who's trying to make a connection between the arts and well-being in clinical practice around the place. And we've just heard from Jason Gardner, exercise physiologist. Thanks, Jason. Also, big thanks to Dr. Dilemma and uh, Dr. Neo. We miss Dr. Sharma. He'll mm. be back. He was otherwise delayed. He was intending to be in, but just couldn't quite make it. And April Amnesty. April Amnesty. Just uh, every little bit helps. You know, we're all volunteers here uh, on Radiotherapy. And anything that you can do to provide a little bit of support to the station that keeps the lights on and the microphones running... Um, will be will be always incredibly appreciated. I think all the details can be found on our uh, on our website. But there's plenty of uh, pretty amazing prizes that they're being giving giving away during the month. Um, yep. You know, just 
comedy, records, uh, food, wine, yep. you know, subscriber discounts. Anything that you could ever place. really want. Anything you want, yeah. Um, good stuff. We do need to wrap. Um, so finally, a big thanks to you listeners um, for uh, being with us for this last hour. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page. 